The 2007 ASH meeting included a plethora of research reports with important implications to oncologists in practice, and one of the areas with the most important new information was in multiple myeloma. I met with Dr. Paul Richardson for his take on these groundbreaking data, and he began by putting the findings presented at the meeting in perspective. I think the American Society of Hematology meeting at Atlanta in Georgia this December was really remarkable in terms of the new data presented for myeloma. I think what was particularly exciting to see was the wealth of highest level of evidence data from randomized phase three trials in the upfront setting for the treatment of the disease. And why I think this is so important is because it obviously seems to be so that in myeloma, the best opportunity for improving outcome in the long term does seem to lie with choice of initial treatment. The better those options are, the better the outcome in the longer term for the majority of patients. And it was particularly impressive to see the impact of novel therapies in the upfront setting as part of that, both in the context of bortezomib-based therapies, which we saw tremendous results both in the pre-transplant and in the non-transplant patient populations. And then also, of course, to see the impact of lenalidomide in both populations as part of the large ECOG experience and also the smaller but just as important SWOG experience. So let's go through some of these papers, beginning with the VISTA trial. Well, the VISTA study was presented by my colleague, Dr. Jesus San Miguel, on behalf of an international group of investigators, including us at Dana-Farber in Boston. And in this study, we had randomized patients either to bortezomib, melphalanoprednisone, or melphalanoprednisone alone. Patients were previously untreated, and they were not candidates for high-dose therapy and autologous stem cell transplant. Now, obviously, patients had to be symptomatic with end-organ damage and measurable disease. And the bortezomib melphalanoprednisone schedule was four cycles, bortezomib 1.3 mg per meter squared on the classical Velcade schedule, days 1, 4, 8, and 11. And then each cycle, in fact, was given over six weeks. So they then followed days 22, 25, 29, and 32 as the second part of one cycle. Melphalan was given according to actually the European schedule, which is 9 milligrams per meter squared, days 1 to 4, with prednisone at 60 milligrams per meter squared, days 1 to 4. And that was the first four cycles. Cycles 5 to 9 were given over exactly the same time period, a six-week period, but instead of giving the bortezomib two days on, sorry, 1, 4, 8, 11, I say, with two-day intervals, bortezomib was given on a weekly schedule, 1, 8, 22, and 29. And melphalan was given exactly the same way. Now, the control arm involved nine cycles as well, obviously, also given over six weeks. But that, of course, was just melphalan and prednisone alone. So both arms involved 54 weeks of treatment. And the primary endpoint was time to progression. And the secondary endpoints included response rate, complete response, time to response, duration of response, progression-free survival, time to next treatment, overall survival. And we also looked at quality of life. In this study, 682 patients were randomized from December 2004 to September of 2006 from 151 centers in 22 countries worldwide. So really quite a unique international effort in that respect. There was an interim analysis performed in September of 2007. It was protocol specified. 
and this showed that the combination of bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone was significantly superior for all of the efficacy endpoints, including time to progression, progression-free survival, overall survival, time to next therapy, and particularly striking was the difference in complete response rate. And what was very exciting was to see Dr. San Miguel present those data. If you looked at the rate of complete response, for example, in the bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone arm, 336 patients, the complete response that were immunofixation negative, in other words, following the criteria of the EBMT, it was 35%, which is very high. Conversely, for melphalan and prednisone, using the same criteria, it was just 5%. Now, if you look at the overall response rate for the bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone trial, it was 82% versus just 50% for melphalan and prednisone. So the melphalan and prednisone control arm, performing very much as one would expect, But I think what was so impressive was the high complete response and overall response for bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. And needless to say, these results were highly statistically significant. And obviously, just a point to mention that the response assessments were done through a centralized laboratory, which I think is an important consideration. Now, the primary endpoint of the trial, time to progression, perhaps not surprisingly, the median time to progression for bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone was 24 months, whereas for melphalan and prednisone, it was actually 16.6 months, and that was a highly statistically significant difference with a hazard ratio of 0.483. And that translated into a 52% reduced risk of progression on bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. And already, a survival advantage has been seen that's statistically significant, with a 40% reduction in risk of death on bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. And at a median follow-up of 16.3 months, the median overall survival for bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone has not been reached. And whilst that's certainly the case for melphalan and prednisone as well also, the actual difference in the survival, however, in favour of the bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone arm is significant, with a hazard ratio of 06 And so what that means in terms of overall survival at two years is that it's 83% for bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone, and 70% for melphalan and prednisone. And when we broke it down by age group, for those patients over the age of 75, it still was 79% for bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone at two years, versus 60% for melphalan and prednisone. Very interestingly, and I think very importantly, treatment-related deaths on each arm were low, just 1% for bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone, and 2% for melphalan and prednisone. Now, what about side effects and toxicity, and particularly neuropathy? Great question, Neil. I think that in terms of the side effect profile, obviously cytopenias were seen in both arms. I have to say, I think the neuropathy rate was higher, as one would expect, for bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. And the incidence of significant peripheral neuropathy was around 13% for the bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone-treated arm. But the good news is that in the vast majority it was reversible using the dose reduction algorithm that is now a standard with bortezomib-based therapy and therefore manageable. Importantly, there were very low rates of deep vein thrombosis on either arm with this combination approach, be it melphalan and prednisone, it was low, and also especially low with bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. I think that it's important to note that fatigue was more of an issue with bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone. That should be borne in mind. But again, generally well tolerated. And I think the best clue, Neil, in terms of side effects comes from, you know, how many patients remained on therapy. And basically, patients remained on therapy for a median of 46 weeks, eight cycles on bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone 
versus 39 weeks with melphalan and prednisone alone, seven cycles. So I think that's an interesting clue to show you that with appropriate supportive care and proactive management, the combination was generally well tolerated. What was your experience in terms of the patients you put on this trial, particularly in terms of the fatigue and neuropathy that you observed clinically? Well, I think my own experience in our trial, we were actually the lead enroller at Dana-Farber for the U.S. sites. Our experience was the responses to the combination were very rapid and deep. And that obviously was very important because, frankly, our patients were a relatively high-risk group. And I would say that, interestingly, in the trial, adverse cytogenetics, advanced age, and renal function had no impact on bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone efficacy overall, which I think is an important positive. I have to say, though, that iDose reduced bortezomib proactively in my patients, again, according to protocol criteria, and in our patient cohort, none of my patients stayed on full-dose bortezomib throughout. They were dose-reduced as we moved forward. I have to say, though, that the quality of responses were quite striking, and in contrast, for melphalan and prednisone alone, our response rate was modest, and stable disease was what we saw in the majority of our patients on the control arm with a side effect profile that was very consistent with what you'd expect from M&P, but the biggest challenge was disease control, and that certainly was strikingly different in our experience. Any sort of criticisms or weaknesses in the design and the way the study was actually executed? Well, I think that the most important thing to be clear on with the trial is, you know, it was an extraordinarily ambitious project to conduct an international trial, 22 countries, 151 centers, I think the strength of the study was the centralized laboratory. I think a real another strength is that as clinicians look at this study and see the consistency of observation across numerous different countries, let alone different centers, I think it gives me anyway a degree of reassurance that there is reproducibility not only to the response that we saw and the disease control we saw, but also most importantly to the side effect profile. I think in terms of weaknesses, I think it's important in the upfront setting to be very clear about response rates. And I think that the rigorous EBMT criteria with the six-week confirmations and so forth, even when those were applied, the CR rate, true CR by EBMT, was 30%. If you looked at CR by immunofixation negative without necessarily the confirmatory marrows, because obviously in different countries that's not always so easy to pull together, it was 35%, which was what was reported by Hezus, I think appropriately, but he did qualify it carefully to say that by the rigorous EBMT, if you use those criteria strictly, it was 30%. So I think what was encouraging was to see that actually there was a high CR rate in this population. And remember, Neil, CR rates of this order of magnitude for this older population are not candidates for transplant. It's quite remarkable. In fact, it's unprecedented at this level. What do you see as the clinical implications of these data? Well, I think that's an excellent question. I think the clinical implication to me is that bortezomib, melphalan, and prednisone in the upfront setting for patients who are not candidates for high-dose therapy is now an important option. And I think we have the highest level of clinical evidence, namely that derived from a randomized prospective phase three trial in a large number of patients across multiple centers in different countries to support its use. Does that mean I'm going to use it for every non-transplant candidate? No. I mean, I think that, you know, the combination is very active, but it's not necessarily wouldn't be my choice for every patient that I see who's not a transplant candidate. I think, having said that, though, it's encouraging me to use it 
as an option for patients in the upfront setting. And very importantly, I have used this combination in the relapse setting as well and been impressed that in patients who have its appropriate consideration, it's quite active. What are the patient types where you might not utilize this? And specifically, how do you approach the patient who already has a pre-existing neuropathy? Well, it's a great question. Pre-existing neuropathy and myeloma is probably underappreciated. In our own studies, we've shown that using neurologic consensus criteria, you can actually see up to 20% of the patients having pre-existing neuropathy. And if you look with specialized testing, that number and proportion can be significantly higher. So I think we've realized that neuropathy is part of the illness. I think that the key point, though, is that the neuropathy that's encountered with this combination, it's an important toxicity, but it's manageable. And in fact, in over three quarters, it's reversible. And I think that's very, very important for clinicians to know. This is not the same neuropathy as that occurs with thalidomide, for example. So I think it's an important point to bear in mind. Having said that, if I had someone in whom I thought a neuropathy would be a real worry, a real concern, I think we have other options, fortunately, such as lenalidomide, where the rates of neuropathy are obviously much, much lower. There, of course, we have different concerns, different toxicities to worry about. But I agree with you, Neil, that I think that the really good news from the meeting is we don't just have one or two options, we have actually three or four. Let's talk about Abstract 450, looking at valcadexamethasone versus VAD as an induction therapy. Yeah, Neil, I think this, just as I think that the VISTA trial was a landmark trial, and just in fact, and I know we're coming to it in a moment, as I think the ECOG trial from Vincent Rajkumar is a landmark trial, I think the Jean-Luc Carousseau IFM study will be viewed as a landmark study. The reason why is because it was such an innovative and novel design. Essentially, what this looked to do was compare bortezomib and dexamethasone versus our old standard pre-transplant approach of VAD as an induction treatment prior to at least one transplant. And what was particularly innovative about the design of this trial, Neil, was that it looked at the need for second transplant and it also tested another question. What is the role of consolidative chemotherapy as part of induction treatment prior to tandem transplant if needed, or one versus a second if an optimal response was not achieved with a single transplant. So the randomization was bold. It was basically a forearm study comparing VAD and standard melphalan 200 milligrams per meter squared, as I say, followed by a second transplant if suboptimal response was achieved to a single, or VAD followed by DCEP to two cycles, followed again by a single transplant with a second in reserve if needed. Very importantly, patients with matched sibling donors could have the option of either a second autologous transplant or a reduced-intensity aloe. Now, the two other arms involve bortezomib and dexamethasone for four cycles, same number of cycles as VAD. One was with DCEP consolidation and one was not, with exactly the same other construct that hydrosmelphalan would be administered, and if a suboptimal response was achieved to the first transplant, a second autologous transplant or reduced-intensity aloe, if appropriate, could follow. And what Jean-Luc presented at the ASH meeting was the final results of response to induction, where he showed that the bortezomib and dexamethasone arm achieved a near-CR and CR rate of 21% compared to 8% for VAD, and that a partial response or better was seen in 80% of patients on bortezomib and dexamethasone versus 63% on VAD. 
I think what was particularly striking, though, is that the quality of responses were higher for bortezomib and dexamethasone, 47% for bortezomib and dex versus 19% for VAD, that's VGPR or better. So I think that that was quite impressive. Um, Very interestingly, the mortality on the VAD arm was 3% and 1% on bortezomib and dex, so that was lower, which I think is very interesting. In any event, the quality and depth of responses to me was the most striking part of this trial in favour of bortezomib and dex as part of induction. Now, what was really then interesting, and I think this is a key message, actually, was that if you looked at the post-transplant response, whereas in some trials, for example, if you administered VAD and compared it to Thaldex, as was presented by the MAG group led by Dr. Macro at the 2006 ASH, what he showed was that when you did VAD versus Thaldex, while Thaldex clearly outperformed VAD, when you did your transplant, the response rates actually became more equivalent. Well, that was not the case with bortezomib dexamethasone versus VAD. Bortezomib dexamethasone, the quality and depth of responses continued to improve post-transplant. So essentially, you had a near CR and CR rate of 35% for the single transplant post-bortezomib dex group. That was 240 patients versus the VAD group, and there were 242 in this analysis, there it was only 24%. That was a statistically significant difference. And once again, the VGPR, or better, 62% for bortezomib and dex, 42% for VAD. And if you looked at PR, or better, it got a little closer, although statistically significantly superior for bortezomib and dex, at 80% versus 73%. So I think the message of that, Neil, is that The depth and quality of response wasn't just better pre-transplant, but that benefit appeared to continue in terms of response quality post-transplant. And what was also particularly interesting was that DCEP did not convey any benefit. It did not improve uh, upon either the effect on the VAD arm or the effect on the bortezomib dexamethasone arm. And I think that's very important because we've obviously had some very provocative data from single-arm experiences from the Arkansas group, which have suggested in part of Total Therapy 3 that consolidative chemotherapy may have a role. But in actually Dr. Barlogi's most recent experience with Total Therapy 3, where he incorporated bortezomib, there was a clue that the consolidation with chemotherapy may not be that important because he was able to reduce the number of cycles of consolidative chemotherapy when he incorporated bortezomib. And in fact, this randomized trial shows that the role of DCEP in this setting does appear, in fact, to be quite limited because no significant difference in outcome was seen in the DCEP-added arms compared to those arms in which DCEP was not used. What about the side effects and toxicity profiles? Well, that's a great question too. Interestingly, bortezomib and dexamethasone had less anemia, neutropenia, and thrombosis than the VAD arm, which was obviously an important difference. However, there was more thrombocytopenia, which one might expect because bortezomib is associated with a platelet-lowering effect. Because a cyclovir prophylaxis was not mandated, there were more incidences of herpes zoster infection. And I think this is an important practice point for colleagues in the community, that when you use bortezomib, it is really critical in the relapsed or upfront setting, or any setting in my view, to appropriately use either acyclovir, famvir, or valtrex as part of one's prophylaxis against shingles because it's a significant problem and it can result in morbidity for patients, particularly neuropathic pain. The other side effects that were more common included fatigue, 
rash, which we do see with bortezomib. It's manageable usually with steroids and obviously completion of treatment. One has to be careful, but the rash can occur with bortezomib. And then, of course, peripheral neuropathy. Again, an ongoing challenge with bortezomib treatment. But the good news here, again, very consistent experiences here with dose reduction and so forth and the use of the bortezomib algorithm reversible in the vast majority of patients. Can you talk about your own clinical experience in terms of the neuropathy with bortezomib clinically in terms of what you see as sort of the initial presentation and as things progress, what you generally observe? Well, it's a great question, Neil. I think that in about a third of patients, and I think the studies have been very consistent in this signal, in about a third of patients we see treatment-emergent neuropathy. Now, if you study it very hard, and we did our own single-agent bortezomib study where we prospectively evaluated neuropathy very proactively with neurologists, nerve conduction studies, even skin biopsies looking at neurite densities and so forth. The rates of treatment-emergent neuropathy, if you look hard enough, are probably even higher. Having said that, the experience we've had is that it's very manageable with dose reduction and particularly with schedule change. And in fact, in our own single-arm phase 2 study, bortezomib as monotherapy, we only had one case actually of grade 3 neuropathy in that study because we were very proactive about dose reduction, we were very proactive about the use of supplements. Again, the data from this trial suggested that they may have made a difference. These included multivitamins, including folic acid and B-complex, the use of certain amino acids, L-glutamine, acetylcarnitine, alpha-lipoic acid, and other remedies, including, and this one may sound slightly facetious and isn't at all, is actually the use of emollients like cocoa butter into the peripheries. It's an antioxidant-rich natural cream, and we do know that small fiber injury in the skin can actually be an important part of the symptom complex with bortezomib neuropathy. And the simple use of an antioxidant-enriched emollient into the fingertips and toes can be very soothing and pleasant for the patient and may, in fact, actually be clinically useful. So there are a number of strategies that one can use. But having said that, the real cornerstone of management in bortezomib neuropathy, in my view, is the use of the algorithm of dose reduction and schedule change when a particularly painful neuropathy emerges. Now, when you do actually have painful neuropathy, I do want to stress, I think, the importance of the neurological analgesics, in particular gabapentin and a newer agent, which we found particularly useful, Lyrica. Those can be very important, and the management of pain, I think, is key. And my neurology colleagues have taught me that actually engendering neuronal healing, actually the control of pain is an important part of that. Let's talk about Abstract 73 by Cavo, looking at VTD versus TD. This was, again, and this is why I think that this year's ash was such a feast in the upfront setting. This was bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone, the so-called VTT regimen, versus thalidomide and dex in preparation for autologous transplantation. This was presented by Michele Carvo, who's actually based in Bologna, and it was on behalf of a very important European group, in my view, the Gemema Italian Myeloma Network. It's really been one of the stalwarts of myeloma research in Europe, together with the IFM and other groups such as the Hoven Study Group, which is both Dutch and German. In any event, the Jemima study was basically a comparison between induction therapy incorporating bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone versus thalidomide and dexamethasone alone, stem cell collection followed utilizing high-dose cyclophosphamide, 
transplantation followed using tandem melphalan 200 milligrams meters squared. And then there was a relatively short consolidative phase of velcade thalidomide and dexamethasone or bortezomib thalidomide and dexamethasone versus a similar consolidation phase for thalidomide and dex. And then finally, a long-term maintenance that incorporated just dexamethasone alone. Now, the treatment schema was typical three 21-day cycles of bortezomib, dex, and thalidomide. Thalidomide dosed fairly aggressively, I have to say, at 200 milligrams per day, bortezomib at full dose on the day 1, 4, 8, and 11 schedule. And they used dexamethasone according to the schedule that we developed in the upfront setting. Actually, Sundar Jagannath and others, and we, of course, had developed it as part of Summit and Crest at lower dose, but it was 40 milligrams per day on the day of Valcade and the day after. In the relapsed refractory setting, we had tested a lower dose, 20 milligrams per day, day of and day after. And the thalidomide and dexamethasone arm was classical, 200 milligrams per day, with high-dose dexamethasone, 40 milligrams given days 1 to 4, and 8 and 11 every 21 days. Now, remember, it's important to note that this high-dose dexamethasone regimen is used with thalidomide, but as we'll come to in a moment, it's not something to consider to use with lenalidomide. In any event, in terms of the response, uh, the VTD versus TD study, there were 129 patients randomized to the VTD arm, 127 randomized to Thaldex. And if you looked at response to primary therapy, the near CR and CR rate was 36% for bortezomib, thalidomide, and DEX versus 9% for Thaldex, which I think was very impressive. That was highly significant. And if you look at VGPR or better, which is an important criterion derived from the uniform criteria, and that showed 60% for bortezomib, thalidomide, and dex versus 27% for thaldex, so nearly twice as much in favor of the bortezomib, thalidomide, and dex. So that was really a very encouraging observation in terms of response rate. And what was particularly interesting, Neil, is that where on thaldex there was actually a 6% rate of progressive disease, there was absolutely zero for bortezomib, thaldex, suggesting that the combination of the three drugs you know, captured everyone and essentially only 7% of the patients experienced less than PR, with 60%, as I've mentioned, achieving very good partial response or better. And then if you look at response to first transplant, again, in a fascinating way, very similar to what I talked about previously in the IFM trial, the combination of bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone achieved a staggering CR plus near CR rate of 57% versus 28% for Thaldex, the CR by EBMT criteria, which in these were confirmed, this was not a subset analysis or subdivided by CR immunofix negative or anything like that. This was true CR by EBMT criteria. The CR rate was 45% post-first transplant for those patients receiving bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone versus 19% for thalidomide and dex. And again, if you looked at high-quality responses, it was 77% VGPR or better versus 54% for the Thaldex arm. So a big difference there after first transplant. Sort of putting together these last two papers, where do you see the clinical implications of this off-protocol? Well, Neil, I think the couple of sort of overwhelmingly important points. One thing that I haven't mentioned, and it was observed in all three trials, is that bortezomib-based therapy was effective regardless of chromosome 13 deletion or other adverse risk features, including high beta-2 microglobulin and even some very, in my view, very important cytogenetic abnormalities such as the 414 translocation. And I think that's a very important message. The other important message in the pre-transplant trials was that bortezomib-based therapy had no adverse effect 
on stem cell collection. And we're seeing, obviously, a consistent signal in terms of neuropathy being a challenge. But in that last trial, the CARVO trial that I just mentioned, what was very interesting was that there was a lower rate of thrombosis for the bortezomib-based regimen as well. So I think there's an overarching message that bortezomib-based therapy pre-transplant should be considered a new standard in my view. Because if you're going to take a patient to transplant, the quality of response pre-matters. And what's particularly interesting is that these large randomized phase 3 trials suggest that bortezomib-based therapy also enhances the quality of response to transplant afterwards. And I think that's a real first in that regard. Now, that in no way diminishes the importance of thalidomide and dexamethasone as an upfront combination. There's no question about that. But I think what bortezomib shows is that you can add it to this combination, that it can improve the quality and depth of your responses. And if, for example, as you said earlier, Neil, you have someone in whom you're worried about neuropathy, as long as you've got options, you can look at perhaps using less bortezomib perhaps, you know, lower doses of thalidomide, minimize that risk, but still see those types of quality of responses that these trials suggest you may be able to achieve. Now, the VISTA trial is in a non-transplant population, so I think perhaps to some extent has to be thought of somewhat differently. But what's particularly exciting is to see that when you're using low-dose melphalan without stem cell support, bortezomib is improving, again, the depth, quality, and durability of the responses you're seeing. To what extent were these data surprising to you and to other people in the field? Were you kind of expecting this, or was the magnitude greater than what you expected? I think we've all been very pleased with how bortezomib's performed in the relapsed and relapsed refractory setting. I mean, it's basically proved life-saving. Having said that, I think the magnitude of impact in the upfront setting has been quite dramatic in my view. And I think that the quality and depth of the responses, the degree with which this translated into clinical benefit, certainly to me, was actually somewhat unexpected. I did not expect to see this degree of benefit. I expected to see benefit, but was quite struck by the degree of it. You mentioned the ECOG trial, Abstract 74. Can you talk a little bit about that, looking at lenalidomide plus dexamethasone? Absolutely. Well, I think the thing is, whilst the ASH meeting was obviously very enriched for bortezomib studies, What I think is particularly exciting for patients and what I think is such good news is that we're not just talking about one great new drug, i.e. bortezomib. We're talking actually about a second great new drug, lenalidomide. Other meetings have obviously had very high-profile lenalidomide data, which are very striking, not least of which were the phase three trials that led to lenalidomide's approval in combination with DEX, where we had extraordinary data in the relapsed, relapsed refractory setting. I think what was very exciting was to see how just in the way bortezomib had been so impressive in the relapse setting and come forward and made such an impact in the upfront setting, was to see actually phase three data of lenalidomide plus dexamethasone also show real differences and important benefits for patients. And the first study that was presented was that of Dr. Vince Rajkumar and colleagues from the ECOG group, which was comparing lenalidomide plus high-dose dexamethasone versus lenalidomide plus low-dose dexamethasone. And, Neil, this study, I think, again, will be a landmark trial. And what was particularly important and impressive about this trial is it really tested the question of what does high-dose dexamethasone versus lower-dose dexamethasone really add in terms of activity compared to toxicity, and how does this impact upon patient outcome, specifically survival? I think what was, to me, the most powerful message of this was that the 
One-year Kaplan-Meier survival estimates to me are quite striking. 96.5% for lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone in the low-dose arm, so that I think was remarkable. In contrast, the high-dose arm, however, doing less well, with basically an 88% chance of one-year survival probability on this study. Interestingly, at 24 months, those survival probabilities still remaining extremely impressive in my view. 87% for lenalidomide and low-dose dex, and 75% for high-dose dex. So clearly high-dose dex and lenalidomide doing significantly worse than low-dose dex and lenalidomide. But I think the positive message for patients is that lenalidomide and low-dose dex combination with a 96% Kaplan-Meier estimate of one-year survival is probably the best seen in any phase three trial to date of this size. So I think that that was what was very impressive to me. Now, what was somewhat disconcerting, though, and I think perhaps counterintuitive, but I think it is explainable, was that the response rates, however, were significantly higher for the high-dose dexamethasone arm, which ultimately performed less well in terms of survival. The complete response rate and partial response rate for the high-dose dexlenalidomide arm was 82%, where it was just 70% for the lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone. I think that, Neil, was a little bit of a surprise because with the survival difference being so strikingly in favor of the lenalidomide and low-dose dex, it was surprising to me anyway to see a difference between the high-dose dex and the low-dose dex in terms of response. What was also a challenge with the response data, Neil, was that Dr. Rajkumar was not able to present the CR data in complete form, I think, because he could only report a 2% CR rate for arm A and a 1% for arm B. And having spoken to him afterwards about this, it's very clear why this came to pass. This came to pass because of incomplete data and so forth, or incomplete assessments at participating sites to really nail down a hard CR rate. My expectation is that when that CR rate is perhaps measured just by paraprotein and immunofixation, which I hope will be possible, we'll see a very respectable CR rate for this data. Because I think for people in the audience, that was a little disconcerting. Having said that, the overall response rates are for both arms are very respectable. And I think the good news for patients is that we're dealing with a new combination, lenalidomide and low-dose dex, that's associated with an unprecedented survival at one year very respectable response rates, which in terms of best overall response, and if you look at what we call very good partial response or better, are quite remarkable of the order of 40 or 40% for an orally administered regimen. I'd like to ask you about the paper you presented, number 187, really kind of moving forward into the natural progression based on what you've already set up to now, looking at lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone as a phase one, two study. Yeah. Well, Neil, thank you for that. I think our trial really built upon what we've just been talking about, because if I could summarize how I interpreted the lenalidomide data is that we've got a streamly active oral combination Unfortunately, high-dose dex contributes excess toxicity to this combination, and therefore low-dose dex needs to be used. However, the quality of responses on low-dose dexamethasone may indicate that really what we need is a third drug. And that's essentially what we went after with adding bortezomib to the lenalidomide and dexamethasone couplet. And the reason we did this is obviously we had experienced in the relapsed refractory setting that this triplet was very active, even in patients in whom either bortezomib had failed or an imid had failed, which is a very important point. And we had preclinical data to suggest that the triplet 
was at the very least synergistic or additive at the very least, and probably synergistic in fact. So based upon that, when we put the three drugs together in the upfront setting, we were able to identify a maximum planned dose in terms of dose-limiting toxicity. That was at 25 milligrams of lenalidomide given days 1 to 14, and bortezomib given at 1.3 milligrams per meter squared on the classical bortezomib schedule, 1, 4, 8, and 11. We actually had sought to test higher-dose dexamethasone at 40 milligrams. Not surprisingly, we had found that to be problematic, and so in subsequent protocol amendment, had reduced the dexamethasone to 20 milligrams administered on the day of bortezomib administration and the day after. And we were very pleased to report that that particular dose level, we called it dose level 4M, was very well tolerated. We did not encounter uh, dose-limiting toxicity and with that combination. We were able to take that forward. For the study overall, in 42 evaluable patients, we were able to report a 98% PR or better response rate using EBMT criteria. That to us is very exciting. About a third got a near-CR or CR which we think is also, and that's relatively early, because remember the patients haven't all you know, come off treatment. They're continuing on treatment in the majority. So we're very encouraged by that, and we're very pleased with relatively low rates of deep vein thrombosis. We only saw two in the trial, and low rates of peripheral neuropathy. In fact, we didn't have one grade 3. We had one grade 2 painful, requiring dose reduction and so forth. But we did not have any grade 3 peripheral neuropathy that fell into those rigorous CTC criteria. So we were encouraged by that and feel that this is an important regimen to take forward. So is this being moved into the phase 3 study? It's a great question. Yes, it is. It's actually already moving into ECOG, led by my colleague Dr. Rafael Fonseca, RVD compared to bortezomib and dexamethasone. Also, Brian Drury is testing in the SWOG group bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone versus lenalidomide and low-dose dexamethasone. I think that trial in particular will be a very important study to watch. Do you think that this combination is something that should be or could be considered in a non-protocol setting right now? Well, it's a good question. It's very difficult to argue with a 98% response rate. But I have to say it's important for colleagues in the community to recognize that this is preliminary. It's a phase one, two experience. But I think we're very encouraged by it. And certainly we would welcome participation in clinical trials as the number one step. And I think the important message is that the toxicity of the combination we're particularly pleased with. We did require aspirin prophylaxis, and we saw, as I mentioned, relatively low rates of DVT, but I wouldn't, you know, again, the numbers are small, someone has to be careful, and the neuropathy rate is, as I say, low. But I think at this stage, it's probably too early to recommend in the community the use of bortezomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. I would suggest that ideally patients be enrolled on clinical trials. I wanted to get your take in terms of other presentations from the ASH meeting other than the lymphoma presentations, which Stephanie Gregory covered. Any that sort of jumped out at you as being particularly important, mainly for the clinician in practice? I think that there are obviously a host of advances being made across hematologic malignancies. I was particularly impressed that there obviously is continuing encouraging data in the area of myelodysplasia. There obviously lenalidomide has a clear role in the 5Q- patients, but you're seeing other agents coming into that field and you're seeing increasing information regarding lenalidomide and its activity in MDS. What about the azacitidine paper that was presented on MDS? Yeah, well, I think that's another example of I think they're very impressive. And I think that 
in the same way as in myeloma for a very difficult disease for which, until very recently, there were really very few options outside of transplantation. We're now seeing in MDS the same sort of paradigm shift with a wealth of new agents coming into the MDS arena in the same way as we have a wealth of new agents in myeloma. What about CML? There were several papers presented there on patients who are progressing in spite of imatinib or can't tolerate imatinib, looking at other agents, for example, dasatinib. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think the CML story to me is amazing. It's had an explosion of novel small molecules, you know, obviously with imatinib leaving the charge. Now we have numerous new drugs backing up the initial sort of icebreaker of imatinib. And what's particularly nice I think for patients is to see that, and obviously for providers as part of that paradigm, is to see that we have options for resistant disease. And I think the same parallel in myeloma is so true that, you know, you can revisit drug classes, you can use drugs again in combination and so forth. Interestingly, in CML, it seems to be a little cleaner. (laughs) It seems to be that you have a series of single agents that you can sequentially use. In myeloma, it's a more difficult disease in my view. It's not such a targeted illness in that sense. And so we're more driven by combination approaches than perhaps they are in CML at the moment. But I would agree with you, Neil, that I think in CML, in myeloproliferative disease, the advances that are being made are remarkable. And it's interesting to see how just as in myeloma, transplant is being integrated into this. In the same way in myeloproliferative disease, I don't think we're seeing in younger patients with CML the replacement of transplant, but I think we're seeing it being integrated into the therapeutic platform in a different way than it was, say, five or six or seven or eight years ago.